In a speech before the UN General Assembly, Iranian President Ibrahim Raisi calls Israel the most savage power in the Middle East. Also in a speech at the UN, Israeli Prime Minister Yair Lapid calls for peace with the Palestinians through a two-state solution. After a Ukrainian offensive routed Russian forces, Russian President Vladimir Putin has called for another 300,000 soldiers to be raised to fight his campaign in Ukraine. Welcome to Inside Israel News, your source for unbiased and thorough analysis of Israeli news, politics, and current events in the Middle East. Or as the internet trolls say, mouthpiece of the Zionist conspiracy, spokesman for the elders of Zion, highly paid propagandist of the Mossad. Yeah, no. This is Inside Israel News. I'm your host, Isaac Kite. Welcome back, insiders. It is uh, an exciting week for news. A lot of stuff to say. Oh, my God. Just so much. I'm going to get right into it here pretty quick, but just wanted to uh, to say I managed to get this show recorded. Uh, we have uh, holidays coming up. Rosh Hashanah for those who are observing according to the rabbinical tradition. Yom Teruah for others, the, uh, the biblical holiday. Uh, an exciting time. Uh, and uh, more holidays to come thereafter. I'm going to try to record as many episodes as I can uh, to keep up the regular flow of news here and news commentary. But in any case, I'm, I'm doing what I can uh, in, in this time. It's kind of kind of crazy times. And no sooner will I uh, finish our holidays by about uh, mid-October than I have an industry conference coming up after that. So like I said, I'm going to try to churn out episodes. We'll see how they go. Uh, I know uh, you, the, the highly erudite audience of Inside Israel News, the insiders, the best informed people uh, regarding news in the Middle East, uh, you will all want to hear more. And uh, as we're heading toward the election especially, so I'm going to do my best to keep all of that uh, uh, coming and, and keep you abreast. As I've mentioned before, there's a, there's a lot of times in this podcast, especially regarding Israeli political news, where... I raise issues that are, um, I think, going to become relevant in the near future, and then they're headlines within a matter of days or, or even weeks. So sometimes you guys even know things or issues or you know concerns before they're even in the news, right? So it's, it's like pre-news commentary. You're, you're finding out what's going to happen before it even happens. So uh, that's always exciting. Uh, last couple episodes dealing with a, a really emotional issue that that uh, is extremely frustrating this this uh, I, I don't even know what to call it's 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 total hate it's just a hate speech that's really the only thing to say where uh, Palestinian Authority dictator and and President Mahmoud Abbas said uh, that the Palestinians had suffered 50 holocausts I mean it, it's ridiculous and I'm gonna cover some of why that's ridiculous uh, again here um, in uh, just a little bit. But first, I'll, I'll cover the news and we'll talk about some of the things going on in the world right now. All right, Iran is back in the news, uh, making ridiculous statements and spreading obvious lies. Uh, Iranian President Ibrahim Raisi said uh, Israel was the most savage power in the Middle East. That's really interesting coming from the president of the largest state sponsor of terrorism in the world. Uh, it's it's amazing. 
you know, this this is like uh, going going back to the 1940s and having Germany, Nazi Germany, come out and say, you know, the United States is the most savage power in the world, and, and you're just sitting there shaking your head like, wow, that is the most asinine lie coming from the most ridiculous source uh, and the most evil source. Uh, this is this is once again the Iranian regime trying to twist events and, and turn things away to um, turn attention away from them and focus that attention over on uh, Israel. You know, so, so now uh, supposedly Israel is the baddie are the baddies and you know this sort of thing. <sighs> we put up with this all the time. Unfortunately, uh, never you never get used to it, I want to say. I mean, I, I've been listening to this stuff, this nonsense, these lies for a long time. Uh, you know, it's like you, you have that great quote from Prime Minister Benjamin Disraeli, right? There are lies, damned lies, and statistics. Um, we, we have to deal with these damned lies all the time. And so you just, what can I say? Uh, it, it just gets ridiculous. Uh, you know, the this evil regime trying to call Israel evil and having a lot of people believe them. Why? Because anti-Semitism. There's, there's just no other excuse. I mean, like I've said before, people dislike Jews. They, they hate Jews. Therefore, they're willing to believe whatever bias, you know, whatever lies, whatever things they hear, because they already don't like Jews. In any case, the obvious lies keep coming. Uh, Iran uh, maliciously attacking Israel. Uh, an Iranian woman <clears throat> was arrested for not having her headscarf tied tightly enough, apparently, and she died in custody. And as a result, there have been some riots and some other issues in Iran. In those riots, six people have been killed. <clears throat> right? Six people. You know, you, you look at... You look at the worst things that happen here in the West. There, there are occasional riots in Europe. They, they happen. People, you know political protests and what have you. But the police don't start shooting at people. In the U.S., we had the BLM riots over the summer. 25 people died, but they were killed by protesters. The police killed zero people. And if the police had killed anyone, we would have heard all, we would, we would never have heard the end of it, right? It would have been, you know, this tragedy. Uh, even January 6th, the one person who died in the whole January 6th adventure as a result of the um, people entering the Capitol, uh, Ashley Babbitt, was killed by a police officer. Right. That's the one person you look at the whole 2020, 2021 thing. The one person who died as a result of police action right there. That's the one person. The Iranians go out and they shoot six people. They kill six people who are protesting. And yes, in, in this case, some cases they are protesting violently uh, against the regime for the murder of a young woman whose only crime was that, quote, her headscarf was not tied tightly enough, right? I mean, you know, it's like you, you go back to the, the 1960s where they used to have girls uh, get down on their knees and if their skirts didn't touch the floor, uh, they would be sent home, right? You know, imagine being sent to prison for that. I mean, it's just, it's, it's hateful. It's horrible. This is, the, this is the regime. These are the kind of people we're dealing with. They're not nice people. You know, they're, they're not uh, civilized people like us. Now, Persian people, you know, Iranians are very civilized people and have been uh, throughout history a cradle of civilization and have helped to 
offer moral guidance to civilizations, you know, in the West, as I said before. But unfortunately, this particular regime is lawless, uncivilized, and inhumane on a level that is just difficult to comprehend over here. Uh, they've killed six people, they'd kill 600. They'd kill 6,000. They'd kill 6 million if they could, without, a hes without hesitating, right? And uh, these are the people who want to have a nuclear weapon. Hmm. Uh, there have also been some cyber attacks in the, in the aftermath of this young woman's death. The Iranian Central Bank and the Culture Ministry were hit hard with cyber attacks. And uh, so they've had some, some punishment for that, at least there. In response, Iran has shuttered the internet in Iran. They've shut down Instagram and several other uh, social media sources. Uh, people no longer have access to uh, communications via the internet, and they're not able to uh, exercise free speech through those media. But I would like to note that the Iranian leadership, who regularly called for death to America and death to the Jews and so on and so forth, all still have their Twitter accounts. <clears throat> Twitter suspended the President of the United States on January 6th after he told people to get out of the Capitol. And his last tweets were, get out of the Capitol, you know, leave, you know, you're not supposed to be there, go, right? And uh, they shut him down then, right, for saying that, apparently. Uh, and uh, did not offer to restore his count until Elon Musk started purchasing Twitter years later, uh, obviously, President Former President Trump has no interest in going back to it. He has his own social media platform. In any case, meanwhile, the Iranians still have their accounts. Um, you know, people like Libs of TikTok, it was a, an Orthodox Jewish woman who goes out and exposes just by, just by recording the videos posted by people on the left, teachers, librarians, uh, people on the left speaking, just exercising their free speech, just saying what they say. She just takes those accounts and shows them to people, their content, and people get upset about that. And she's been suspended from several platforms, right? I mean, come on. That's just ridiculous. And, and again, it's, it's not anything that she's posting for herself. She, she has her own commentaries, uh, which are, uh, you know, which are, are fair and, and, you know, fairly reasonable. She says, look, you know, this is happening here or that's happening there and provides factual evidence, you know, flyers of uh, advertising events for uh, with children, what have you. Anyway, th this account gets suspended. But, you know, the the Nazis of our time, <laughs> the terrorist leaders of the Iranian regime, uh, they have all their accounts on Twitter. And so they can tweet death to the Jews, death to Israel, death to America every day and, and make sure that uh, that that gets heard while they can even shut down the internet for their own people so that they can't communicate with the outside world or communicate with one another. Uh, you know, you couldn't make this stuff up if it weren't the case. You know what I mean? It, it's, it's just, wow. Also happening at the United Nations, <clears throat> Prime Minister Yair Lapid did call for a two-state solution um, and you know, expressing his hope that there can be some peace with the Palestinians. And I've talked about this a lot uh, on the podcast, that the problem here is the Palestinians don't want to make peace. Since 
the very beginning, a hundred years ago, uh, they had this sort of racial supremacist notion, the Jews are our dogs, the Jews are this minority uh, who has been oppressed, dimis in, in Arabic, right? Uh, and they're unwilling to accept the possibility that Jews will return to Jewish, ancient Jewish land uh, and be the majority and have freedom. They, they must be under the thumb, under the boot of Arabs and, and Muslims in order for the, the Muslims to be okay with that. And so this sort of racial slash religious supremacist agenda uh, has been there all along. And they've been unwilling to accept any peace deal that requires them to uh, recognize Israel. And I've talked about the failure of the Oslo Accords. I've talked about the history of violence and all of this sort of thing going back. So you can get all that from previous episodes. I've also discussed why the Palestinians can't adopt passive resistance. And if, if the story that they're telling us is true, if, if Israel are, are these uh, aggressive occupiers who want to destroy all of the Palestinians and take their land, like, first of all, what's stopping us? I mean, Israel, very powerful military, powerful economy. What, what you know, and if not now, then why not 40 years ago? Right now, Israel's a little bit more sensitive situation in terms of trading with the, with the world and what have you. But you know, why not in the 1970s? Why not in 1967? I mean, what, what were we waiting for? If that, were, if that was our goal, why did we wait? Why did we hesitate? Why haven't we done it? Right? Okay. Anyway, uh, so if we're, if we're that bad, then why wouldn't passive resistance work? Right? Why wouldn't passive peaceful protests, no violence whatsoever, solve the problem? Because if they were nonviolent, Israel would have no excuses. If Israel is the one that indeed is looking for excuses to avoid peace, Israel would have no excuse but to adopt peace if the Palestinians were passive. There'd be no argument. I mean, what do you need a security fence for if there's no violence, no terrorism? Life is good, right? Uh, so the fact that the violence continues exposes and underlines the nature of the cause because the goal is not a Palestinian state. Since the very beginning, the Palestinians haven't really expressed a sense of statehood or a desire for statehood, they have simply expressed a desire to end our statehood. They don't want us to have a state, and so they have sought a national identity and national institutions such that they can seize our state. Okay, that's why the violence continues. Again, in support of this racial supremacist, religious supremacist agenda, uh, that was, you know, the, the flames of which were fanned by the Nazis. This, this is the last legacy of the Nazis today. Well, Yair Lapid expresses this optimistic point. He hopes that the two-state solution could still be reached. Everyone in Israel who's being honest with you, except for a handful of deluded um, extremists, let's just say, everyone admits that the two-state solution is dead. That's the opinion everywhere. Left, right. You know, some people lament it. You know, I talked to a couple of people on, on the left when I was uh, last in Israel and I communicate with them every now and then, some of my friends there, uh, and they'll, they'll lament the fact, you know, they'll sit there and like, oh, it's, it's terrible. The two-state solution is dead. It's never coming back. And we tried. It's probably not going to happen now because they also have a sense of realism and reality, right? You, you, there are things that just can't be. <clears throat> People on the right, of course, are happy that uh, in large part that there's no two-state solution because they want to continue building communities in uh, the Shomron and Yehuda. Uh, Samaria and Judea, which are, you know, ancient Jewish 
lands, ancient Jewish places, in, in the first place. Uh, and uh, they understand that the two-state solution was tried and it didn't work, right? So, you know, there, there's that. But there's, there's no reasonable expectation that this will happen, right? President Biden also gave a speech at the UN, and I want to note the most important and newsworthy point here. The president managed not to embarrass himself or the United States during the speech. So he managed to, to give a speech without going off course. We didn't hear anything about corn pop, extremely confusing rhetoric about, you know, getting lost in this or curing cancer or <laughs> something like that. So thankfully, we, we avoid the air of ridiculousness, but still calling for a two-state solution there in, in Israel. Well, that, that's wonderful to call for it. And it's a wonderful notion, but you can't make peace with people who don't want peace. As I discussed in a previous episode, it would be wonderful if the Palestinians could adopt passive resistance. It'd be wonderful if they were willing to accept peace because that's what we would like to have. We'd be perfectly happy for them to have their own state. Ehud Barak went way out on a limb at the end of, of negotiations with the Palestinians in 2000, offering them absolutely everything they could want. They, they got all the ice cream, they got the whipped cream, they got the cherry, they got the sprinkles, anything they could possibly want. And Yasser Arafat said no and launched a campaign that killed 800 Israelis, a majority of them women, a disproportionate number of them children, uh, in this terrible campaign of violence that made life difficult to live in Israel and was simply mistimed because 9-11 uh, kind of took the wind out of the sails of terrorism uh, and uh, it destroyed their campaign. In any case, the two-state solution, any solution to the conflict, requires both parties to be willing to accept peace. Israel has put <coughs> anything and everything on the table to make peace. It's been rejected. So Israelis are no longer as eager as they once were, but still open-minded. When the Palestinians decide that they want peace, then it's just a matter of details, right? We draw lines on a map and we, we'll do this and we negotiate that and we'll trade this for that and what have you. It's, it's, you know, a matter of horse trading at that point, right? And get all the details. Oh, you get this little piece of land. Oh, we get that little piece of land. You know, that, that's that. But there has to be a willingness to accept peace in the first place. And polls consistently show that the average Palestinian people don't want peace. And obviously terrorist organizations like Fatah, who run the government, Mahmoud Abbas is, is Palestinian Authority president and dictator, is also the leader of Fatah, the terrorist organization. And even though they're slightly more moderate than Hamas, Hamas, the other terrorist organization backed by Iran, right, that, uh, that is uh, militant and Islam especially Islamist, right, they don't want peace. It's not in their best interests, right? They want war. Uh, so, again, it, it's a question of wanting peace. And I wanted to issue an example there. Uh, years ago, I attended a speech that uh, was about ethics, and it was given by the former president of Ecuador, Jamil Mawan. And uh, President Mawan was talking, former president at that point, uh, was speaking in California at the time, which is where I saw him. And he talked about different ethical things. And, and one of the things he raised was uh, 
negotiations that Ecuador had with Peru. Ecuador and Peru fought in the Pacific War um, way back when, mid-19th century. You know, some chaos back in the, in the 1860s and what, what. And they never really made a formal peace. So here was the 21st century, the early 21st century, and he wanted to end this conflict, right? So uh, they, they're negotiating back and forth, and they worked everything out except for one issue. There's a, a cemetery, which is kind of a monument uh, that both sides claimed. It was right along the border between the two countries. And obviously, Ecuador wanted it, and Peru wanted it. And they, they're going back and forth about this. And he, he said uh, there was no solution. No solution at all, right? They, they both sides wanted it. They, they can't both have it, right? There's no solution. But they both wanted peace. So there was a desire for peace. The strength of that desire for peace led them to come up with a solution. And that is to split ownership, right? You see, as former President Mawan pointed out, there is a difference between sovereignty and ownership. And so this monument was within, left within the borders, sovereign borders of Peru. Therefore, it belongs in, in terms of national sovereignty. It is within the, the borders, within the territory of Peru. However, private ownership, title to the land, was given to Ecuador. So Ecuador owned the property, but it was within the national borders of Peru. Right? This shows you that when two parties desire peace, they can work through even the most difficult things. It's this very sensitive issue, this cemetery, monument that's, that's extremely important to both sides. They found a way to solve the problem. Again, when any two parties want peace, we can find a way. Even if it's not fun, even if we don't like the result, if we want peace badly enough, we'll find a way. Okay? If you don't want peace, then you'll continue to fight. You'll find a way to keep fighting. And that's been the case. That's what we have, uh, what we have experienced. So there, there's that. Uh, great interview I want to highlight, and I, I'll share it on the Facebook page. If you want to find it, you can go to, to YouTube and go look it up yourself, though. Uh, great uh, interview. Ron Dermer former uh, Israeli ambassador to the United States, gave an interview with Jordan Peterson, uh, who has come to uh, work with uh, Ben Shapiro. And, and he's making a lot of these really great interviews. He's getting some really great people. And he had Ambassador David Friedman recently, also a great interview, highly recommend. All of these interviews are awesome. Even if you don't agree with the people, uh, there are a lot of things that are said there that I disagree with and uh, don't like. You know, and some, sometimes, my friends, you just need to hear opinions you don't like. I'm sure that some of my opinions you guys don't like, and yet my insiders, you return to keep listening because at least you hear a different opinion. You hear something new that maybe you didn't hear before, a uh, new opinion, a new observation, and it gives you something to think about. You know, I like listening to people I disagree with. Uh, you know, listen to Bill Maher quite a bit. Uh, uh, enjoy uh, snippets of his shows. I, I don't watch the whole shows, but uh, snippets of his shows and commentaries. Strongly disagree with a lot of the things he says, but I listen because I want to hear what uh, people who disagree with me are saying. Otherwise, uh, we all live in these echo chambers and all we hear is, you know, people who think like us. Well, that's awesome. But, you know, there are people out there who don't. And even though we don't like what they think, maybe we should know what it is. Anyway, uh, great interview. Ron Dermer, 
had a number of uh, interesting points to make about this this conflict and how it's all uh, perceived. And talks a little bit about how the Abraham Accords came together, how uh, he and, and the Israelis had been talking to Secretary of State John Kerry before the Trump era, right, uh, while Barack Obama was still president, uh, about how there was this possibility, this potential for peace with the Arabs, right, that you have two separate conflicts here. You have a Palestinian-Israeli conflict that dates back, you know, 100 years. You have an Arab-Israeli conflict, which is a separate conflict. They're related, but they're separate, right, with, say, between Israel and Egypt, Syria, Jordan, Saudi Arabia, right, between Arab countries at large and Israel. Of these countries, slowly but surely, right, Egypt and then Jordan, several of them had been making peace with Israel, and it's like, why not Saudi Arabia? Basically, when Saudi Arabia normalizes relations with Israel, for all intents and purposes, the Arab-Israeli, the larger Arab-Israeli conflict is over at that point, right? Whereas the specific Palestinian conflict is just a part of that larger conflict. And actually, uh, if you look at the numbers of people killed and the violence that's taken place, the Arab-Israeli conflict is the larger conflict, right? I'll come to those numbers here in just a minute because there's some really fascinating points that he made in, in his interview. Uh, but we, we're in a situation where when the United States goes out and, and buddies up with Iran, pals around with Iran. We're, we're coming up with deals. We're going to lift sanctions. We're, we're showing, uh, you know, weakness toward Iran uh, when we're wishy-washy with Israel, right? When, when America has a tense relationship with Israel, as, as we've had during the uh, Obama years and once again in the Biden years, right? When there's that tension, our other allies in the world, like Saudi Arabia, which is a U.S. ally, ostensibly, look at that and they, they think, wow, America's not being a very good friend, right? And I want to personalize this just a little bit. Let's just say you have a good friend, right? And you see how your friend treats other people. You know, your, your, your good friend, your buddy, that someone you'd like to be able to rely upon if you have a, a need or a crisis or, or something's going on with you, right? But he treats his other friends like snot. Well, that's not a really good friend, right? I mean, you're, you're sitting there, you begin to wonder, okay, well, he's been a kind of a good friend to me, but if I really needed to rely on my friend, how friendly would he be, right? And that's the situation that, that causes problems in the Middle East. When the Trump administration came to office and showed that they were strongly in support of Israel and supporting Israeli interests, uh, annexation of the Golan Heights, uh, taking Israel's side in a lot of issues, that showed that the United States was being a good friend to its allies. And so now your friend all of a sudden is being a good friend to his friends, other friends. Now you begin to have more, con oh, you know, maybe he was going through a phase. Now we're, you know, he's being a good friend to his friends. Now if I have to rely on him, I feel like I can. Uh, and uh, with the Khashoggi incident, the, the killing of a uh, uh, blogger, journalist, uh, who was an opponent of the, the Saudi royal family. You know, it, it's a really unfortunate thing. In these countries, there isn't freedom of speech, okay? They, they, if you go to Saudi Arabia, you're not allowed to say, dress, or act the way you want to, okay? They have laws that 
you know, people joke, you know, they're back in the 15th century. Well, that's where they are. Okay. Like it or not. And they, there is some evil in that. And I'm not a, a fan of this guy, Khashoggi, but he should not be killed. Just like I, I talked about uh, a number of Palestinians being pressed and killed for their freedom of speech. Even when they're saying hateful things about Israel, even when it's anti-Israel speech that's being suppressed, people have a right to speak. In my opinion. And here in America, we want to protect that. That's part of our value system. It is not part of the value system in Saudi Arabia. However... Saudi Arabia is coming along. They're moving forward from the 15th century toward a modern era. And that's one of the things uh, Ron Dermer pointed out, that you're getting slowly but surely this conflict between modernity and antiquity, right? And in that conflict, Israel is clearly on the modern side. And a lot of people in the Arab world who are also on the modern side see that they have common interests there. And that's something I've talked about here many times on the podcast already. You guys know this, that the Arab world is changing, right? Uh, Arabs historically have shown a great, uh, incredible capacity. Like I don't even have a word to describe this capacity uh, for willingness to learn and evolve. You know, they, they sought out the Greek philosophies, translated them into uh, Arabic. They brought in Persian scholars. Uh, they didn't know how to run their empire. And so they brought in all the scholarship and they learned. You know, the, some of the, you know, sometimes the smartest thing you can do is say, I'm stupid, right? I don't know how to do this. I'm going to go learn. And so they went to the right sources and they learned and they evolved and they created a, a, a really uh, forward looking regime back in that time. Now, they're currently in a situation where things are kind of backward. Uh, they're, you know, fundamentalist forces that are still looking to the 15th century and, and, and thinking very positively about that time. But at the same time, there are those who want to go forward. That's a wonderful thing. It's certainly worthy of reward, of rewarding and encouraging. And I, for one, is ex I'm excited that that's happening because I look forward to a day when Israelis and Arabs are good friends in a modern context, looking forward to the future, right? That we're building a tech industry in the Middle East outside of just Israel because that will benefit Israel. We'll, we'll all work together on high-tech stuff, manufacturing, uh, new approaches to economic development and growth, water, you know, obviously. So, you know, Ron Dermer point this out, pointed this out, you know, this is going on. And when America's being a poor friend to its other allies, the Saudis don't trust us. Well, in this case, the Trump administration kind of looked the other way on this journalist's death, didn't, didn't make a big thing out of it. And so the Saudis realized, oh, here we have someone we can work with, someone we can trust, okay? And all these people criticizing President Trump that, you know, he praised Putin and he praised uh, Kim Jong-un. When you go to negotiate with people, even with bad guys, right? I mean, you, you can't negotiate with people by insulting them. Walk up to Vladimir Putin and, and refuse to shake his hands and say, F you. Now, uh, let's negotiate about nuclear weapons. I mean, I, I'm sorry, that's that's over right there. If I'm Vladimir Putin, I'm turning around, I'm walking right back out the door and, you know, I'm, I'm going to raise tensions and, 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 you know, try to to show how dangerous I am in order to embarrass or or threaten those who insulted me. Right. That same with Kim Jong Un. You can't negotiate with people by insulting them. Right. Is that famous moment in 1988 when Ronald Reagan, as president, was visiting the Soviet Union. He's on the tarmac in Moscow and a journalist asks him, you know, Mr. President, are you 
visiting an evil empire. And he smiles a little bit, and he's that, that great, you know, um, Reagan charisma comes out, you know, that he, he had a smile and a face that could melt hearts and, and you know, very friendly. And he said, and he, and he kind of tilts his head and he says, no. I mean, what's he going to say in the middle of Russia? Yes, I'm standing in an evil empire and insult all these people that are standing around him. But at the same time, he had negotiated with Gorbachev and some of the leaders of the Soviet Union and brought significant progress. You know, they had come down from the Cold War significantly. In fact, within, you know, just about a year of that, a little over a year after that uh, visit, the, the wall would, the Berlin Wall would come crumbling down and uh, Eastern Europe would break free of the Warsaw Pact. So the point is, and you have to negotiate with people. So, you know, this kind of thing. So once the Arab world understood that America could be trusted, that America was solidly in Israel's camp, that we were uh, cracking down on Iran, they could see where our priorities were for the long term. And then they were willing to enter into negotiations with our other allies, America's other allies, that could have benefits for them. I talked about the Abraham Accords, obviously Bahrain and the UAE joined um, people talking, oh, this is a weapons deal. Yes, these peace deals are all weapons deals. They all involve some major benefit. I mean, Jordan made peace with Israel and got significant water resources out of it. Right. I mean, they didn't just negotiate peace and be like, you know, we're making peace for free. Uh, President Trump has actually criticized American presidents for doing the same thing, for making peace for free. You know, lifting uh, sanctions on Cuba, normalizing relations without getting anything back. Like, you know, shouldn't we at least demand that they release their political prisoners? Okay, you get people who are in prison because they spoke out against the regime. You release them, we'll normalize relations. Something, anything, right? Okay, just <laughs> end of rant. You, you guys have heard me rant frustrated in frustration about these things before. So... Uh, Dermer points out that once once they knew what the U.S. priorities were and that we could be trusted, they entered into this process. And you know for a fact, the UAE and, and Bahrain are very close to Saudi Arabia, and Bahrain especially is rather dependent on Saudi Arabia. They would not have entered into negotiations to normalize relations with Israel if they did not have the blessing of the Saudis. And so the idea that the Saudis could join the Abraham Accords and make peace is brilliant. It it it. it should happen, but it's not because the Saudis no longer trust America. We're not being good friends to our allies. We're warming up to Iran again. And right, that, that also sabotages the potential for peace for a two-state solution because that tells the Palestinians that they can keep doing what they're doing, keep resisting, keep fighting, and no change will come because America is not being a good friend to its allies. All right. And the other thing that came out in, in Dermer's talk, he, he mentioned that he met with an ambassador from Burundi, and he had to look it up. He knew, he knew Burundi was somewhere in Africa, but he had to look up the location. And, uh, you know, they're chit-chatting, and he asked the ambassador from Burundi, you know, do you guys have any security problems? And this ambassador says, uh, no, no, everything's fine now. Uh, we had some problems with the Hutus. They came to our country, and there was a, you know, there was a genocide. They killed a lot of people. And Dermer says, well, how many people died? It's terrible. He said, oh, in our country alone, about 300,000, right? Uh, you know, we all know, if looking back to the, the situation in Rwanda, the, the Hutus and the Tutsis related back to Belgian King Leopold II's psychotic efforts to uh, divide people into superior, those with superior and inferior traits, kind of phrenology, dar social Darwinism, and all the evils of 
you know, the concepts of racial supremacy and what have you, uh, and divided those people into uh, Tutsis who were the the more superior people, the those who were closer to what is intelligent, and the Hutus, who were less so. And then you get, um, you know, there were there were concentration camps and there were mass exterminations and there was this sort of industrial murder. Uh, it, it was it's horrible, but you know, I hear people talk about you know we we have the Holocaust, we have a lot of other issues that happened, uh, Cuba. Right, but the, led to the American intervention in the Spanish-American War. Uh, but people don't often talk about the Democratic Republic of Congo, Rwanda, Burundi, this area where <clears throat> this kind of stuff happened, and it, it was really horrible. Uh, that's why America has opposed colonization since you know <laughs> July Fourth, seventeen seventy-six. So um, anyway, this conflict, terrible conflict, three hundred thousand people killed in Burundi, and so. Just, just thinking, you know, Ambassador Dermer is thinking, well, how many people do you suppose have died in the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, right? The conflict between the, the Israeli, the, the Jews and the, and the Arabs generally, but specifically in this conflict between Jews and, and the Palestinians. And, you know, Burundi, the Burundian ambassador sits there and he says, um, oh, probably a couple million. And uh, Dermer had to, like, he almost fell out of his chair thinking, I mean, couple million? And he said, you're going to have to take a few zeros off of that. It's about 22,000. And the Burundian ambassador was just taken aback. But, but, you know, the UN passes like a dozen resolutions a year against Israel. Israel's the greatest enemy in the world, the most evil regime. You know, if you didn't know better, you would think that Israel are the real bad guys in the world. They must have, you know, there must have been millions of deaths and this kind of thing. 22,000. And then he pointed out that the entire Arab-Israeli conflict including fighting with the Egyptians, the Jordanians, the Syrians, the larger battles that have been fought, uh, the, the total casualties from all that, and of course the massacre of the Palestinians by the Jordanians, we're talking about less than a quarter million people, right? Fewer people than the genocide in Burundi. And, you know, he started asking that question of people, uh, and we're not talking about like people on the street, right? Ambassadors, political leaders, people who should know better. And he said the smallest number he's heard is half a million people. And, and he's had people say as many as four million. Want to talk about false perceptions there. Holy mackerel. Uh, I just had to, to relate that to you guys because that, that's just ridiculous. I remember when Rush Limbaugh began talking about polls taken in, in late 2020 uh, where people by marketers, you know, marketing agencies, people thought a tenth of the population, 10% of the population had died from COVID. And he said, you're going to have to move that decimal point over a few points because the, the death toll at that point was like 0.001%. I mean, we were talking way down, tiny, tiny fraction of the American population had died. Uh, and yet the perception was that it was 10%. Same thing here. People have this perception that if you didn't know any better, if you just go by what's in the news and, and what uh, the UN does and all of that, you'd think that this is the most important conflict in the world, that there are millions of people who have died, that it, this is the worst thing that's happening in the world. Israel is a country of 9 million people. Okay, we're, we're, it's, it's smaller than the state of New Jersey. Okay, we're talking about a, a small country. Okay, there's debates about, you know, how many Palestinians are living in Gaza, how many are living in Judea and Samaria, somewhere in the order of four to five million, 
Okay, I'm just just throwing that out there. I, I get attacked by people on the Israeli right sometimes. Um, we have fruitcakes too, people. We do. And they're like, there aren't that many people living there. That's all a lie, whatever. I'm like, okay, guys, take a deep breath. <sighs> take a deep breath. Just using the numbers that are out there, okay? It's just... Let's just, you know, there's, there's more than 10 and fewer than 5 million. I, and I, it really doesn't matter the precise number. Uh, but, you know, we can go out there and count, you know. Anyway. So, um, anyway, whatever number there are there. I mean, so, you know, millions of people haven't died. Right? So this idea that there have been 50 holocausts, 22,000 people are the total number of deaths in the entire Israeli conflict, Jews and later Israel with the Palestinian Arabs, you know, Palestinian is a term they made up in the 60s, that there was never really a nation. Uh, Palestine is a, a term that the Romans used to apply to the region after it was uh, mostly ethnically cleansed of Jews. There were still Jews living in the region. Anyway, go into all that. Okay, so we're, we're, we're on the same page here. Now you know what's going on there. Um, Dermer interview, very good, uh, but that exposes a lot of uh, the ignorance about this conflict and its scale. And Dermer pointed out that that, you know, that's the cloud that hangs over this conflict. Like everything in the Middle East would be fine if, if there weren't the, this war between Israel and, and the Arabs. Uh, no. Now, the fact is that there are other conflicts. I mean, Israel has nothing to do with what's going on in Yemen. Right, the, the Yemeni civil war, I've described, you know, in, in the supplemental episode that, and I've talked about it a couple times since then, just keeping you guys up to date with what's going on. None of that has anything to do with Israel. Israel didn't start it. Israel isn't involved. They aren't a party to it. Haven't done anything about it. Not their problem. Nothing to do. The, the conflict in Iraq between Sunnis and Shiites that has led uh, to Iran's domination of Iraq, basically. Again, nothing to do with Israel. Okay, the Sunni-Shiite conflict has nothing to do with Israel except in that the Sunnis see that Israel is a strong ally against the Shiites, right? But, you know, that's not, that conflict would exist if Israel didn't, okay? But as Dermer points out, there's only one country in the world where whenever we make a mistake or whenever we do something wrong or, you know, people go out and say we're bad, it means we don't have the right to exist, right? France you know, slaughtered all these Algerians and France did all this evil or whatever. And then you say, okay, well, so France shouldn't exist. We'll give, you know, Southern France to Spain. Uh, the Riviera will give to Italy. Uh, Northern France will split it between Belgium and Germany and, and Luxembourg can get a little extra territory there. And then people are like, no, 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 no. I mean, that, 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 that's not, you know, France is still going to exist. Oh, oh, okay. Well, Germany, look, they committed genocide. They invaded Russia. They invaded France. They, oh, that's a horrible. Stuff. So, well, you know, we'll give part of it to Poland and uh, Denmark and Austria and, 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 you know, the Netherlands and, you know, France will get a piece. Oh, no, 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 no. Germany is still going to exist. I mean, Germany committed genocide and, and did all these horrible things, but Germany is still going to exist. You know, Israel, uh, you know, 80 years ago, before Israel even existed, there was a, a massacre at one Arab village. Therefore, Israel shouldn't exist. Wait a minute here. You know, uh, some some settler fruitcake went and shot a couple Palestinians. Israel shouldn't exist. Huh? Say what now? It, it, it just gets asinine, you know, and that's that's back to the root of the anti-Semitism. 
When I get back from the break, uh, talk a little bit about the Iran nuclear deal and move on to politics. I want to do this really quickly. Uh, first of all, shout out to listener Ben. Listener Ben asked this question, and so I want to answer it briefly. But um, you guys know uh, how I am about brevity. <laughs> so uh, I'm more on the Ars Longa than Brevet Vita side of things, right? Um, anyway, uh, I, I go on and on and on. Okay. Anyway, um, he asked a very good poignant question that I think deserves some airtime. So thank you, listener Ben. Very much appreciate the question. You rock. He asked, how does the Iran deal differ from past nuclear agreements? For example, the agreement that Bill Clinton that the Bill Clinton administration, the Clinton administration made with North Korea back in the 90s uh, or agreements that the United States made with the Soviet Union and later with Russia. Great question. Awesome point to raise. First of all, the agreements that the United States made with the Soviet Union were agreements between two nuclear powers of approximate equality, right? Uh, at that time, the Soviet Union had a lot more warheads deployed than we had in the 80s. Uh, the U.S. had more warheads available, but fewer missiles in the ground ready to fire. But enough. I mean, we, we both had enough to blow the world up seven times. I mean, each... You know what I mean? It was a terrible, terrible time in the Cold War with all these weapons and what have you. And thank God, Baruch Hashem, we, we stepped back from the abyss. And, uh, you know, we did not fall. We, we backed away from the precipice and that war never happened. But that's between existing nuclear powers. Well, part of those agreements among existing nuclear powers, which also include Britain, France, possibly Israel, I won't say either way, but uh, Israel is kept mum on, on that question. Uh, Pakistan, India, and uh, now also North Korea, at least by their own claims, right? Uh, these countries, obviously Russia and China, these countries have nuclear weapons, right? They are nuclear powers. And um, so there's a difference between two nuclear powers working at an agreement amongst themselves and working out agreements with countries that are not yet nuclear powers. So that's the big first big difference. Uh, I would also note that Bill Clinton administration made a deal with North Korea, and North Korea ended up with nuclear weapons. They delayed. It took them 20 years longer. But they claim now to have and possess nuclear weapons. They also sent nuclear scientists to help the Pakistanis develop their own nuclear weapons. Right. So now Pakistan is a nuclear power. And I'll say right now, North Korea, Pakistan, and Iran should not be nuclear powers. And of those three, Iran is the only one that is not yet a nuclear power, but they aspire to this. The, the world's leading state sponsor of terrorism should not have nuclear weapons. They will not be a responsible player. I mean, look at, we, we've, we've been fortunate that the parties who do have nuclear weapons have been relatively responsible. After the, the end of the Cold War, after the Soviet Union fell apart, Kazakhstan, Ukraine, a number of uh, former Soviet republics chose to dismantle their nuclear arsenals and become non-nuclear powers. Uh, but Russia inherited most of the uh, Soviet nuclear arsenal 
and continued to be a nuclear power. So we made a deal with them. 2002, uh, George Bush and Vladimir Putin sat down, building on the START treaties. <clears throat> they negotiated to reduce our weapons. The U.S. reduced uh, in various stages. We reduced the number of weapons that we have, you know, intercontinental ballistic missiles in the ground to 500 to 450 and now uh, down to 400. We now put one more head on those missiles, right? Uh, we don't use the, the MIRVs, the multiple independently targetable reentry vehicles, the, the multiple warheads per missile. We don't do that anymore on our ICBMs. Still do that on our submarine missiles, but our, our sea launch ballistic missiles, but that's a different thing. We reduced the number of submarines. We had 18 Ohio-class ballistic missile boats at the time. We took four, the, the oldest four of them, and uh, retired them from the nuclear service. They, they became uh, cruise missile carriers for a while, and now they have been decommissioned. So we now maintain only 14 ballistic missile boats, and we're only building 12 to replace them. We're building 12 new ones now. <clears throat> Likewise, we stopped putting nuclear weapons on bombers and flying them out there. In exchange, the Russians were reducing their number of bombers. Basically, Russia's bomber fleet doesn't fly. They can load some nuclear-armed weapons onto their fighters, like the MiG-29 Fulcrum uh, and the, uh, the Su-57. Uh, but loading missiles on Sukhois is not the same as having a large bomber. Like, you know, the top Tupolev Tu-160s, the, the big supersonic bombers. It's not the same thing. So we, we kind of backed off, both sides backed off the bomber issue. The Russians are focused primarily on their ICBMs. We focus more on our sea launch ballistic missiles. And <clears throat> that kind of balanced some things out. But that's amongst existing nuclear powers. In dealing with Iran, number one, we have an irrational fanatical terrorist state that we can't trust to be a, a, um, a reasonable player, a rational player in, in the nuclear world. Number two, past efforts to prevent countries from developing nuclear weapons, that is non-proliferation treaties and agreements, have failed. North Korea has become a nuclear power. India and Pakistan have both become nuclear powers. With India, the U.S. was a little less concerned about that. Uh, because India is a democracy and a rational player, and right, Pakistan is a fairly unstable democracy, but a democracy nonetheless, some of the time. Uh, hasn't always been. Uh, you know, various dictators coming and going earlier on in its history. But, you know, these, these countries have nuclear weapons. That's very dangerous. What happens if India and Pakistan go to war with one another, and it escalates, and things get out of hand, and missiles start flying? Right? There's, there's a billion people living there. More than a billion. That's a lot of people living under the threat of nuclear annihilation. That should not exist. Same thing with Iran. The possibility that Iran could you know, press a, press a button and destroy Saudi Arabia, UAE, Bahrain, you know, Jordan, Egypt, Israel, anyone that you don't like, um, you know, that, that's not... That's not right. We don't want that to happen. So that's really the, the crux of how it, it differs. But the main concern is North Korea. So I, I'll share it again. George Friedman writes for Stratfor, very brilliant thinker. 
uh, wrote an article years ago uh, that really stuck in my mind. It was, it was really brilliant, where he pointed out that the North Korean regime has built a strategy of being crazy, unstable, and uh, dangerous. And the idea is that they're so dangerous that you have to negotiate with them and you have to give them food and money and, and, and appease them, or they might get angry. They might do something crazy. At any minute, something crazy could happen, right? If you don't take care of us, we'll go crazy. And he pointed out that Iran, of course, was trying to do the same thing, right? Iran was trying to become dangerous, crazy, right? Unstable, like, we, you know, we're going to get angry here. And uh, them having a nuclear weapon would, would be very dangerous. So I'll share that article out there again so you can have a chance to, to talk about it and look at it. Uh, but that's how these, these things differ. Iran cannot be allowed to have a nuclear weapon. And no agreement we make with them now is going to lead to that. They see the U.S. as weak. Uh, we're, we're, you know, talking out of both sides of our mouth. We're being duplicitous toward our allies and our enemies. Um, Russia has no respect for the U.S. There go the invasion of Ukraine. We've lost the war in Afghanistan. China is barely respecting U.S. threats to defend Taiwan. Barely. Thank God. We came this close to... You know, a real World War II, uh, World War III scenario, excuse me. Uh, you know, a, a Cuban missile, make the Cuban Missile Crisis look like, you know, a day at the park. I mean, if China invaded Taiwan and U.S. forces are then directly engaged with Chinese forces, we're in a situation that just cannot happen. Nuclear powers cannot engage in direct military confrontation. We cannot fight each other. Because the moment we do, we're at war. And in war, you use weapons. And when the soldiers and, and planes and ships run out and you're losing the war, you're going to turn to the other weapons that you have. Right? And then there comes that moment where, backed into a corner, one side is losing, especially China, and there, there gets to be that attitude, hey, if we're going to lose, we're going to take everybody down with us, right? Why wouldn't you if you were China, right? If you're backed into the corner, you're losing in Taiwan, you, you're, you're losing, uh, you're, you're uh, driven back to China. But the loss of prestige in China means that the communist regime could fall. You're going to lose absolutely everything. Uh, if we're going to lose, at least we're going to take you down with us. So they, they launch in America. America has to launch on them. Boom, boom, boom. Billions are dead. And that's horrible. Can't happen. Okay, so let's by all means avoid these conflicts. But the way you avoid these conflicts is strength. Your, your opponents have to know that you are willing to take them on, ready and willing to take them on, and uh, then they will respect your position and they will not try you. All right, <clears throat> Israeli politics. Politics, politics, politics. Uh, there's been some fun. <laughs> some new uh, things. This one, this first one, onto a topic that's more entertaining than, you know, nuclear annihilation. Defense Minister Benny Gantz has run an ad suggesting that he could form a new government and be prime minister. Uh, he's kind of pushing that angle again. That was something that early on, uh, back in 2019, uh, was pitched. Uh, initially, he and Yair Lapid would, would go in rotation. And then in the second election, Benny Gantz kind of took the, the lead and, and the idea was he would be prime minister and Lapid would support him. Uh, that didn't work out. 
then he made this uh, sort of emergency unity coalition deal with Bibi Netanyahu uh, to deal with the COVID crisis. And after that, he kind of lost his popularity. So when I started the podcast and and you go back to the early episodes, I talked a lot about Benny Gantz being in that position. Well, he certainly is pushing the idea now that he could form a government. However, a lot of people are noting that, uh, you know, while the ultra-Orthodox parties could make him, you know, offer him enough seats to have a majority, they're unlikely to do so. They're not going to sit in, par- in government with Benny Gantz. They don't want Benny Gantz. They want Bibi Netanyahu. Again, someone they trust to be friendly to their interests. So that was just kind of comical. Uh, there, there are people who, in politics who get a big head. Um, I'm reminded early in the podcast where I did a whole supplemental episode, could Naftali Bennett become prime minister? Again, something that, that preceded later headlines, uh, pointing out that you know if he had enough seats, he could hold up any coalition agreement and force either Netanyahu or Yair Lapid to give him the top job in order to form a government. Ultimately, that's what happened. So you heard it. You heard it here first. I hope. <laughs> I'm sure there were other people who wrote commentary suggesting that that such a thing was possible, possibly before me. But in any case, you go listen to the podcast uh, episode. There, you can see. You know, you heard it here, and then it became the news. Anyway, um, Benny Gantz running ads. He's not going to lead the next government. Uh, it's it's between Bibi and Lapid right now. <clears throat> but it was funny that he ran that. I, I thought you guys would get a kick out of that. Um, Eilat Shaked, formerly of the uh, Yamina party with Naftali Bennett, who, joining the coalition, uh, created this change block coalition. That kind of ticked off a lot of people on the right. She has rejoined the Bayit Hayyudi party, Jewish home. That's what that means. Uh, this is a party that uh, she, and used, she and Bennett used to be in this party years ago. Uh, they left it to form their own. Uh, it hasn't been in Knesset for a while, but she's gone back over there. She tried to form this one Zionist spirit <clears throat> with a member of the Knesset named Handel, who was former with, formerly with Gideon Sa'ar, but couldn't join his new joint list with Benny Gantz. Anyway, I've described all that in previous episodes. Well, Shaked is back at Bayit HaYehudi, back at Jewish home, and uh, she is making uh, apologies for the the situation that that happened with the change block, she said that Bennett was responsible for negotiating with Lapid and forming the change block government. Uh, she says she tried to work out a deal that would have made Bibi Netanyahu prime minister, but she claimed that uh, the leader of the far right uh, religious nationalist party, Betzalel Smutrich, and uh, Gidon Saar, leader of uh, New Hope, now with in co- uh, joint list with. Uh, blue and white, right, um, <clears throat> that uh, that those two torpedoed the agreement, right? Uh, she says she just chose not to re- resign at the gov- from the government nonetheless, right? So, you know, of course she chose not to resign. Uh, she had to stay on. Um, she still sits as interior minister to this day during the interim government. So mm-hmm. it's, it's interesting to see the backpedaling. Unfortunately, it seems that Naftali Bennett has kind of destroyed her career. Uh, he, he seems to have tried to leave her with a legacy that might have brought her back to government, but it, it hasn't happened. The Yamina party is basically dead. <clears throat> uh, she's she's trying to run anywhere she can. She's pulling way below the threshold, and so it looks like uh, Ayla Chaket is not going to be a factor in the upcoming race. 
and that could have provided a few more seats that could potentially go to Bibi Netanyahu. Now, could something change between now and November 5th? Could she get back in the game? Anything can happen. As I've said before, in Israeli politics, never say never. Expect the unexpected. Weirder things have happened. Uh, some event could happen between now and then that, for whatever reason, Ayelet Shaked herself could become more personally popular with a certain con constituency. It's unlikely, but it's possible. It could happen. In any case, it looks like she's kind of out of the running now. <clears throat> also, the joint list has broken up, the Arab joint list. So going back in the back story of this, and I, I've talked about this political conglomeration many times before, so now I will speak of its end. <laughs> it's uh, when, when you have a, a proportional system, political system, obviously parties win seats based on their vote, the percentage of the vote, not individual candidates running in geographic districts or anything like that. So there's a threshold, a minimum number of votes, a minimum percentage you have to earn of the total number of votes to earn seats in the Knesset. Uh, originally, there was no threshold in, in Israel, and then eventually there was a 1% threshold set, and then that was raised to 2 And back in uh, 2015, uh, Yair Lapid had that raised to... Uh, three and a quarter percent. Just raising the threshold, the idea was that people would be kind of pushed to vote for larger political parties instead of the sort of dissembling, you know, these, these, these broken up political factions where everyone votes for narrower interests and it's for, difficult to form a government for the country because there are all these tiny little parties that only want a few things. Anyway, so... Um, Fearing that they might fall below the threshold, the Arab parties in Israel all banded together into the Arab joint list for the 2015 election. And uh, the joint list at that time got 13 seats. And since then, it's been slowly slipping down. Uh, the total number of Arab seats in the most recent election was 10, right? And that's kind of interesting. There you have, you know, 10 percent or you know, not almost 10 percent, a little less than 10 percent of the seats in the Knesset going to Arab parties. You know, you ask yourself, how many seats go to Jewish candidates, Jewish parties in, in Arab states like Syria, if they were to hold elections? None. <laughs> there are no Jews sitting in the, uh, in the parliament there, right? So that's just, that's just one of those things. Anyway, but Arabs are represented in the Israeli Knesset, even though they say the most atrocious things. They despise Israel, most of these parties. Anyway. This last election, Ra'am, one of those parties, an Islamist nationalist party led by Mansour Abbas, left the joint list and ran independently. And they earned four seats in the last Knesset, just clearing the threshold. Talked before about the difficulty of polling Israeli Arabs. And, um, you know, so that's, they, they, pollsters are, are often, you know, they often struggle with that, trying to get an accurate idea of who's going to vote and for whom they're going to vote. Anyway, uh, so with Ra'am leaving, there were only three political parties left in the joint list. Ta'al, another nationalist party, uh, Balad, a secular nationalist party, and uh, now you have uh, also Hadash. Hadash is basically the Arab Communist Party. <clears throat> so you have nationalist, communist, religious nationalist, that's what's left there. And, and Ra'am is uh, also religious nationalist, um, just not 
you know, a different variety, you know, different flavor of religious nationalist. In any event, <clears throat> so uh, Ram, of course, joined the change block government, helped them win uh, enough seats to have a majority and, and, and have a government. Well, the joint list is broken up completely now. Uh, Balad left the joint list and is running separately. Now, Hadash and Ta'al are still running together as a joint list, but there are only two parties left, uh, and uh, they are polling at four seats. So, with Ra'am polling at four seats and Ta'al Hadash f polling at four seats, then there will be about eight seats. Uh, Arab parties will hold eight seats about in the coming Knesset if they both clear the threshold. Now, if one of them falls below the threshold, then obviously that party disappears from the Knesset. <clears throat> but that means that the number of Arab Knesset members is going to go down from about 10 down to 8. Right? Uh, so that will help with proportionality for Bibi, as I'll talk about here in just a second. So Bibi's natural coalition partner. So Bibi Netanyahu leads the Likud party. It's the largest secular right political party in Israel. <clears throat> it's actually the largest political party in Israel. It's the main right-wing party. So you, to make a really terrible comparison, you know, it's like Likud are the Republicans and Yeshatid and the chain leads the change block. So you could say, well, so Yeshatid are the Democrats. No, not quite. But, you know, left and right don't quite work the same way in Israel as they do here. Uh, but those are now theoretically the largest parties on each side. And so, you know, you could consider them kind of the main parties. And then they form coalition governments with the smaller parties, uh, bringing, knitting them together to create a coalition. Well, Bibi Netanyahu leads Likud. <clears throat> he has very strong natural coalition partners in the Orthodox parties, uh, Shas, the Sephardic Orthodox Party, United Torah Judaism, the Ashkenazic Orthodox Party, and Religious Zionists, the Religious Nationalist Jewish Party that is led by uh, the aforementioned Betzalel Smotrich. And <clears throat> these parties all together are right now polling at about 60 to 61 seats, depending on which poll you look at. Uh, and, you know, these polls reflect changes. So there's a few polls out now uh, that reflect, <clears throat> let's say, the breakup of the joint list and uh, the breakup of Zionist spirit and these kinds of things uh, where Ayla Chaked left that party. So <clears throat> Israel is looking to see fewer parties in the Knesset this go around, uh, all things being equal right now. So... <clears throat> Basically, Bibi and his natural allies are polling at 60-61. The change block, led by Yair Lapid, those parties are polling between 54 and 56. So far, Meretz is still polling above the threshold. Ra'am is polling above the threshold. So if those stay, then um, they will stay on the, on the change block side. And <clears throat> so Bibi Netanyahu has this sort of five-six seat lead that I've talked about from the very beginning. Now... These are polls. All polls have to be taken with a grain of salt because they do not reflect actual votes cast. <clears throat> and it's difficult to know from a poll of, you know, picking any thousand people or 500 people or whoever to ask questions. You, you know, you try to get a good demographic representation if you're conducting the poll scientifically anyway. But <clears throat> these are difficult things to get. However, in Israel, it's good you know, it generally gives you a fair ballpark. And since we're talking about proportional representation, not direct election, okay, you, you get 
you get the idea. So, BB has a chance of winning. Right now, Yair Lapid and the change block are just a few seats behind. Something could happen that changes that. Maybe something will drive up the votes uh, for the center. I want to say the center left because, you know, Yeshatid and they have a lot of left wing parties, a couple, you know, Labour and Meretz, left wing parties in the coalition. They also have very right wing parties like Yisrael Batenu uh, and uh you know, Benny Gantz is kind of center-right. Gidon Sa'ar is known for being right, but they're, they're running together now. So we'll, well, that's more of a, a center-right party now than a center-left party. In any case, so you, you have all that going on. Um, but if uh, Ta'al Hadash, for example, doesn't clear the threshold, and those are four seats out, then the Arab parties would have only four seats, the Just Be Ra'am, with four seats in the Knesset. And if that were the case, that would definitely benefit Bibi in terms of proportionality. Because once you... The more parties don't clear the threshold, the the stronger the impact of proportionality, right? So whatever percentage of votes you have will earn you more seats the fewer parties join the Knesset, you know, across the threshold. So Bibi Netanyahu continues to have a path to victory, and he continues to be a little bit ahead of his opponents. A little bit of news about Britain. Uh, Queen Elizabeth II has been laid to rest, had her funeral uh, you know, she'll be missed. She was a good friend to the Jews in Britain. And as I've uh, talked about in the previous episode, she did not choose to visit Israel, uh, but she's been very positive about Judaism in, in Britain, which has been uh, helpful because her uncle, uh, the Duke of Windsor, uh, who had for a brief time reigned as King Edward VIII, he was a friend of Hitler's and a peaser and uh, an anti-Semite. So it's very good that uh, Queen Elizabeth has been able to repair the relationship between the crown and the Jewish community in Britain, uh, but she did not choose to, to visit Israel or become involved in any issues related to uh, that conflict. <clears throat> that said, uh, Charles III is a little bit different political animal there, and so while I'm only going to discuss this briefly, um, First of all, she did choose to have uh, Charles circumcised by a Moel. Uh, Moel is a, a professional, a Jewish professional whose job it is to, you know, snip off the foreskin. Uh, you know, it's a great job. They let you keep the tips. Sorry, bad Jewish joke. Uh, and uh, on another bad Jewish joke, uh, I was just joking the, with a friend earlier today that, uh, you know, maybe she shouldn't have had a Moyle do the job because, you know, that could create some hard feelings or rather a lack of hard feelings uh, between King Charles and Jews, <laughs> right? Uh, that bad Seinfeld joke, you know, no hard feelings? No, never. Uh, anyway, um, so, you know, King Charles has visited as Prince Charles, he visited Israel several times. Now he's king. It'll be interesting to see if King Charles will visit Israel. Uh, he has a personalized kippah as well. A kippah is a little hat you wear on your head, for those who don't know, uh, the Jews wear when praying. Uh, he has his own. And uh, he's visited synagogues before, and obviously he's visited Israel. Charles has been known to be a little more left of center. And uh, historically, in the previous generation, uh, though, you know, the Jews in Europe especially have been fairly uh, left of center and so close with uh, more left-leaning, center-left politicians and what have you. And that's all changing now because increasingly the left is 
problematic in Europe, and Jews are voting in greater numbers for the right, and sometimes even the extreme right, because they are seeking protection, uh, those Jews who, who are staying in uh, European countries. Not all, but some. And uh, we'll see what happens here. Right. Uh, obviously, uh, Charles, being a little more labor-oriented than, than Tory, uh, like his an ancestors, um, Queen Elizabeth was a little bit balanced, uh, although it's known that Prime Minister Wilson, the Labour Party, was one of her favorite prime ministers, uh, that, uh, that she was very, very sad to see him go. Uh, that was more a, a matter of their personal relationship being just having a really good working relationship, good professional relationship, rather than uh, necessarily about politics, uh, although politics played into things, you know, matters in a lot of cases. Uh, it's known that the Queen had a rather cold relationship with Margaret Thatcher, uh, that even though Thatcher was a dedicated royalist, uh, she and, and the Queen didn't see eye to eye on a lot of things. Uh, and, you know, even with Tony Blair, uh, it's, to all accounts, she had a good relationship with him. Even though he was more Thatcherite, he was also Labour. Balancing the center and a lot. Anyway, um, so we'll, we'll see what Charles chooses to do. He's only going to be on the throne a few years. Um, he is commanded to abdicate on his 80th birthday. That means that at that time, his son William is next in line, would uh, accede to the throne. So, <clears throat> we'll see. We'll see. Speaking of prime ministers, Liz Truss, the very final prime minister to uh, be appointed by Queen Elizabeth, uh, she'd visited the Queen just days before her, her death, uh, right after the Conservative Party leadership contest had chosen Liz Truss. She is now prime minister. And there are a couple of interesting things that are happening as she takes over at number 10 Downing. Uh, the first is that she, she said she doesn't think there's going to be any trade deal forthcoming with the U.S. Uh, she had a conversation with Biden, uh, President Biden, and, and apparently, you know, there's some, some coldness there. Again, you know, how you treat your allies. Britain is America's closest ally. I would, I would place rank uh, Israel as number two um, in that uh, equation, right? But... Uh, Britain is our closest ally, and it would behoove us to be friendlier toward Britain. But uh, the Obama administration disapproved of Brexit and didn't like Britain leaving the European Union. And so it seems the Biden administration is equally cool to Britain uh, along those lines. <clears throat> uh, Truss is also working to re-engage with France. She met with Emmanuel Macron. She's talking about uh, Britain and France becoming friends again, uh, renewing that relationship. So that might be... Uh, something positive. Boris Johnson was known not to have a good relationship with France. And before him, uh, Theresa May spent much of her political energy on Eastern Europe in an effort to try to negotiate with the European Union and push smaller European Union members to uh, support Britain's position at the EU, uh, within the EU. So, Liz Truss is working on those things. Uh, she's made a lot of promises about the economy, about taxes and that. Will she be able to keep any of those? Can Britain cut taxes at this time? Uh, can they decrease government spending and fight inflation? We'll see. That remains to be seen. Okay, with that, I'm going to take another break here, and then I will come back to talk about the situation in Ukraine.
Do you want a career path that's thrilling, exciting, and gives you access to incredible power? Then join the Secret Jewish Space Laser Agency. I, Isaac Kite, and the director of the Electric Eye Division of the Secret Jewish Space Laser Agency, and I will say that we have an excellent organization. It's a great career choice. You will have the power to use secret Jewish space lasers and to promote the interests of the elders of Zion and, and the vast Zionist conspiracy as your day job. So sign up today. All right, on to talking about Ukraine. Uh, I know this podcast is already long. This episode, there's so much to say, and I don't know when I can get the next episode out. So I'm just going to go ahead and, and include my thoughts here uh, briefly, which means this is going to take a while, right? Okay. <laughs> uh, Ukraine has launched a major counteroffensive that has... Uh, turned into a route for the Russians and that has been brilliantly executed and uh, was done in a way that was extremely sophisticated strategically and so uh, you know as noted uh, the Russians are, are calling some of the Ukrainian generals uh, in this geniuses and operationally brilliant in an effort to try to downplay their own failure but of course you know NATO is not NATO is not directly involved, but that doesn't mean that these uh, Ukrainian generals don't have access to NATO officials and former generals and what have you. They can ask for help, intellectual help, as in, you know, how to, how to, you know, what tactics to use, what strategies to use in the war. So they are benefited and backed by the West at all. And um, they, they certainly have been well advised. <clears throat> and yes, their military is fighting quite competently. Uh, well done, Ukraine. So they launched this counteroffensive in Kherson. If you look at the at the map of Ukraine, the Kherson Oblast is just north of, uh, Oblast means region, district. It's difficult to translate precisely into English, but that's basically the region. <clears throat> anyway, uh, the Kherson Oblast is just north of Crimea. So by pushing there, they didn't quite get to Kherson itself, but by pushing there, they created a fear among Russians, including Vladimir Putin, that they might take Crimea. Because if the Russian forces in the Kyrgyzstan area were defeated, Ukraine would have an open road into Crimea, and then the fighting would proceed there. If Ukraine liberates Crimea, if Ukraine takes Crimea back, it puts Russia in the worst possible position in this conflict. Russia absolutely wants Crimea, number one, most important thing, first and foremost, uh, they have to have Crimea. They'd like to have Donbass as well. They would like to have had all of Ukraine, but uh, they're, you know, Ukraine, Ukraine is resisting. Okay, so Putin was forced, his generals were forced to redeploy some of their forces to the south, to Kherson, to prevent Ukraine from making major advances in that area. Then, when enough Russian forces had been drawn down there, thinning Russian lines elsewhere uh, along the, uh, the front, and of course the Ukrainian forces had withdrawn from the Solidar salient, uh, preventing themselves from being encircled, but also forcing the Russians to advance and thus lengthening their supply lines and putting them in a more militarily pre precarious position. Right, then Ukraine hit back in, in the Kharkiv Oblast, taking 
occupied territory there, liberating all the way to the Russian border. Uh, you can see videos on TikTok of Ukrainian soldiers reaching the Russian border and taking pictures of the border signs. And of course, they're not proceeding beyond that. They're not invading Russia, but they are driving the Russians out of Ukraine. They also uh, then attacked in Donbass more generally and have routed Russian forces there, driving them back. For a time, there was a concern that they might encircle Russian forces around Solidar uh, and thus reverse the, the encirclement threat of the Solidar salient the other way. The offensive has been very successful. It's driven the Russians back. And uh, there's a very good possibility Ukraine will be able to get uh, deep into Donbass. And uh, they're already at the outer reaches of the Luhansk and Donetsk People's Republics. These fake uh, splinter states, separatist states that Putin has propped up in order to uh, try to claim that parts of, of Ukraine. Well, you know, there, there you are. Uh, it's possible that Ukraine will be able to drive back toward the coast, toward liberating Mariupol and uh, getting back on the Black Sea there and, and moving toward uh, uh, Crimea that way. We'll see. Uh, still, very good news. Uh, now Ukraine has kind of slowed the advance. They're consolidating their gains, uh, shoring up supply lines. They will be resuming again soon. Uh, as you may be aware, winter is coming, and winter is going to be very unpleasant. Uh, winters in Russia are infamous, and uh, this isn't going to be a fun time for them uh, when the winter arrives. So Ukraine is preparing for a renewed offensive there. I just want to uh, take a note, you know, with this victory. I, I haven't personally felt so good about a military campaign, a military victory since the U.S. went into Afghanistan after 9-11. That was a righteous campaign. The Taliban were horrible. We, we were working together with Afghanis to liberate them from these terrible, oppressive uh, Taliban leaders, and, and it, was, it was a great time. After that, the decision to go into Iraq I didn't agree with, and so I found that a disappointing campaign because it shouldn't have happened in the first place. Uh, and everything that's happened since then, obviously now we've lost in Afghanistan and those Taliban bad guys are back in charge there. Nobody wants to do anything about it. So, there you are. In any case, uh, feeling good about this. Glad that Ukraine is, is finally fighting back against Putin's aggression. Um, I've noted on the podcast several times, and I know there are a lot of people on the right who are buying the Russian propaganda. They're <clears throat> they're getting the stories that, you know, oh, Ukrainians are neo-Nazis, you know, Ukrainians are bad. They're they're the Zelensky's corrupt. There is a lot of corruption in Ukraine. That's true. Zelensky is the best president they've had. That doesn't make him a saint. <laughs> OK, uh, but the fact is, Ukraine has the right to be a sovereign, independent country. They have the right not to be invaded by a foreign power, and they have the right not to be uh, murdered en masse, right? Vladimir Putin, uh, I heard about him, talked about this a few times, before he was even president of Russia. I was reading about him uh, rising to the position. I read about him first when he was a candidate for prime minister, uh, as Boris Yeltsin was looking for someone to prop up Russia late in his uh time in office as president and late in his life, as it turned out. So um, Boris Yeltsin uh, would appoint Putin prime minister, and I was already worried about him then, <clears throat> me personally. Uh, once he became president, uh, he earned the title the Butcher of Chechnya. 
as a Jew, we have been the victim of genocide before. And so we pay close attention to what's going on in the world. I mentioned the Burundi conflict, the, the Rwandan conflict uh, earlier. You know, these are, these are horrible things that happen and they get ignored or forgotten. And we can't let that happen. What happened in Chechnya was evil of the highest order. Basically, Putin's approach to the Chechen insurrection was no more Chechens, no more insurrection. So he literally bombed the country flat, right? Just, just killed as many Chechens as they could. And through attrition, you know, they killed enough Chechens, the insurgency basically went away, right? It was a horrible thing. By 2005, the mass murder of Chechens being complete, uh, things calmed down and he was able to move on to the 2008 invasion of Georgia, which was easy to see because they'd uh, thrown out the former Soviet leader and uh, were now proceeding in a more Western direction. It might have involved their joining NATO. Uh, while Georgia is a long way from many NATO bases, they do border, you know, in, in terms of Europe, they do border Turkey, which is technically a, a NATO member. Now, I have called for Turkey to be suspended from NATO because of Erdogan uh, in the past. Um, I've also advocated for dissolving NATO uh, in the past. But now that we're back in conflict with Russia, we're back in a situation where we need NATO, where it has a value. It's like we, we could have made better relations with Russia and worked things out. That didn't work out. So now we're in this miserable situation where we still need NATO. Um, even though we could be allies with Europe without NATO, we need this mechanism uh, because to dissolve it now would be to show weakness. Uh, so, you know, there. Uh, more on that. More on the NATO front in just a second here. So, sad news. In the liberation of parts of Ukraine that were occupied after the liberation of Izmir, the, the Ukrainian city of Izmir, a mass grave was found with at least 400 bodies. The, the Russians just can't help themselves. This just seems to happen. Uh, you know, the, the most embarrassing thing uh, early in the Second World War for the Allies in, in this area was that the Germans found the mass graves of Polish officers in uh, Russia who had been killed by Stalin. And that was a huge embarrassment for the Allies. Now, the, the Germans embarrassing the Allies over this is completely, complete... Yeah, yeah I mean, it, yeah. the maliciousness of it, right? I mean, here are the, the Nazis who were literally, in, in 1942, keeping Jews in ghettos and getting ready to liquidate those ghettos and, and murder the Jews in an industrial way, right? Those same Nazis are, are out there complaining about uh, the massacre of Polish officers by the Soviet Union. Uh, but, but it highlights the evils of Stalin as well, you know, that, that he was committing the same kinds of things. And unfortunately, working with Stalin was our deal with the devil uh, that would allow us to the United States, being us and, and Britain and our, our Western allies, to avoid most of the fighting, right? on the Eastern Front. Uh, more on that another time. In any case, we have these 400 bodies in Izmir that demonstrate that Russia has been murdering civilians and killing people and dumping them in mass graves. More of the same, more of the same. Just like uh, people have been taking in the, uh, the Russian propaganda over here in the US, right? And I've been telling people you're going to hear all kinds of things. Not only is Ukraine the neo-Nazi state, but now Russians are turning to their traditional scapegoats, 
the Jews. Uh, Russian anti-Semitism is on the rise again. The Jewish agency was shut down in Russia. Uh, Russian Jews are, are fleeing the country now for fear of their lives. Uh, because, of course, we know that Jews often take the blame in these situations. The Russians will say, you know, well, it wasn't that the, the Russians were defeated on the battlefield or anything like that. It's the betrayal of the Jews. So now Ukraine is becoming the, the neo-Nazi state that's also the Zionist conspiracy and the globalist conspiracy. If you're hearing any of that stuff out there, and there's a lot of it by people on the right. Unfortunately, some people who were very respectable on the light uh, on the right in the past are buying this. They're they're proving that they lack discretion. Um, they're they're going after this propaganda and eating it up. Um, well, you know, here here's your propaganda. Here's your your pro-Putin propaganda right here. Go look at the 400 bodies in Izmir, okay? And you'll you go look at that, and you'll know that Isaac is right. And uh, the Russian propaganda is wrong. And in future, you can listen to this podcast and you'll always know how to be on the right side of history. Uh, forgive the arrogance of that statement. I, I'm just frustrated by that propaganda uh, and the horror of all this. You know, that's why, I, uh, that's why I, I've been an opponent of Putin's since my younger years in the first place. Because he's the butcher of Chechnya. That's how Vladimir Putin operates. He is a horrible, horrible dictator. He's not a good guy. He's not defending Christian values and, and Western values in, in this war with, you know, globalists and Western liberals or whatever. You know, he is he is the next Hitler. He is an aggressive dictator. And I, when I say the comparison to Hitler, I don't mean like, you know, exactly like the Nazis or that he believes in Nazism. Like Adolf Hitler, to, to make the simile more accurate, he is invading sovereign countries. He's an aggressive dictator. And all these people, oh, he's not trying to take over the world. Yeah, not yet. You know, but like with other aggressive dictators, including Hitler, including other dictators, once he wins this conflict, he'll move on to the next one. Okay. So don't buy the propaganda. Now, I, I do want to take a, a second here. I don't have a lot of time. I'm trying to wrap this up. But Tucker Carlson and a few other people out there are talking about sort of the other argument. So if you're believing Russian propaganda that somehow Putin is the good guy and the underdog and Ukraine is this neo-Nazi state and they're all bad, you know, neo-Nazi state with a Jewish president, that's that's rich. Uh, also, the Zionist conspiracy and, you know, elders of Zion. And, I mean, they can have it both ways, I guess. Anyway, <clears throat> So if you're hearing that nonsense, the other side of that argument is a traditional American approach to uh, foreign affairs. And that is, why is this our problem? You know, should we be involved? And Tucker Carlson has kind of taken the lead on that. It's a fair question to ask. Okay. When we get into conflicts, too often we get involved in these, like the invasion of Iraq back in 2003. And you're still left there scratching your head. Why are we involved? Why is this war worth American lives? Right. In this case, Americans are not fighting directly. We're not spreading, spending blood and treasure. We're only split, spending treasure. And it's a lot of money. And we know that there's a lot of corruption in Ukraine. We know a lot of that money is not going to go where it should. Okay? But why is this important? And I've explained that before. This is very much in the strategic interests of the United States. And the comparison I'm going to make is historical. In 1938, Czechoslovakia had the seventh largest army in Europe. Right? They had a very, very large military force. 
the Slovaks, because Czechoslovakia is made up of two ethnic groups basically, the Czechs who live in Czechia or formerly Bohemia, now Czechia or formerly known as the Czech Republic, it's Czechia, and they live uh, next to Slovakia which is kind of wedged in between Poland and Hungary and Slovakia is uh, a different ethnic group. And the Slovaks were much more leftist at the time, friendlier to communism and, and socialism. The Czechs were more free market, uh, but they both had good cause to oppose the Nazis. You know, the idea that, you know, Hitler wanted to carve up Europe and, and carve them up with it. You know, he wanted to have them for, for lunch, uh, have his cake and eat it too. And the excuse he used, and this is going to sound really familiar. Oh, there are ethnic Germans in Czechoslovakia. Where have I heard that before? Hold on a second. Vladimir Putin claims that Ukrainians are Russians and therefore Russia should take over Ukraine. And at the very least, in, in the case of the Donetsk and Luhansk People's Republics, you know, these are largely ethnically Russian. Why? Because Stalin starved half, uh, you know, 7 million Ukrainians to death in the Holodormer in uh, 1932 to 33, that winter. So, you know, the eastern half of Ukraine was largely depopulated of Ukrainians and their ethnic Ukrainians, and therefore Russians moved in. Anyway, in 1938, the Munich conference was held and you had uh, the, the French nationalists represented there. You had Prime Minister Neville Chamberlain uh, of Great, Great Britain. You had all that going on. And Hitler says, I want the Sudetenland. It's this ring around Czechoslovakia, the, the Czech part, Czech Republic area, or Czechia today, uh, this is an area that's, that's covered with cliff faces, and it's very rocky and hilly. It was heavily fortified by the uh, Czechoslovakian army at the time. It would have been miserable to try to take this, and historians have noted uh, if Hitler had tried to take that by force, if he'd invaded Czechoslovakia, it would have led to a lot of German casualties. In fact, uh, Oldendorf, the, the head of the German army at the time, wrote letters to some of his fellow army commanders suggesting that if Hitler ordered an attack on Czechoslovakia, again, large military, well-defended, terrible terrain for a war, you know, it'd be like World War I all over again with the trenches, but this time with the Czechoslovaks having the high ground, this would have been a miserable thing. Uh, there was talk of, of ousting Hitler from power. The, the army, the Wehrmacht, was literally ready to remove Hitler from power. Shortly after this, uh, of course, they would be, uh, these, these leaders would be out of power. Why? Because Hitler was proving successful and he was able to invade Poland after that. Anyway, the Western allies did not want war and they were so averse to the idea of war that they gave in to Hitler and they let him have the Sudetenland because it was, it was largely populated with ethnic Germans, okay? That excuse flew there, which forced the Czechoslovakian army to pull back from those defensible positions. And because they'd been abandoned by the allies, the Czechoslovakian state collapsed. The Nazis and their agents convinced the Czechs to separate from the Slovaks and uh, got a, a faux government in, Czech, in Czechia to invite them in. And so the Germans ended up occupying the rest of Czechia, uh, formerly Bohemia, in order to, uh, you know, theoretically, like with Austria, an Anschluss, 
right? You know, so Ustrike, the Anschluss, right? We were unifying here. And so we had to Czechoslovakia to Germany. Imagine for a moment, just go back. Imagine for a moment if the United States had gone to Munich and said no. Because Bloom was... Uh, was not in power in, in France at the time. The, uh, the French uh, Jewish, as it were, uh, socialist leader, uh, socialist, uh, he was uh, much more string, stringently anti-Hitler. A lot of the French nationalists were just kind of like, well, we, we, don't my, you know, we don't want Germany to attack us, but you know, we're, you know, they, they kind of had to, to play along with the British. If the U.S. had gone there, being the power that we are, and, and sent a representative to Munich and said no. Imagine what would have happened there. Let's just suppose for a moment that Hitler invades Czechoslovakia anyway. Now, Britain and France wouldn't declare war because they hadn't promised to. They ultimately said they'd declare war if Hitler invaded Poland, right? An even greater prize. But Hitler invades Czechoslovakia. Now, at this time, Hitler hadn't had his rapprochement with Stalin. Things were very week. I, I get to spend hours talking about the scenario, but let's just go down to the basics here. Imagine if the U.S. was sending arms to Czechoslovakia, along with Britain and France. We're arming the Czechoslovakians to fight Germany. And the Germans are having to cross this terrible terrain in the Sudetenland. And they're, they're getting, they're, the soldiers are getting mowed down, and the army is not 100% in Hitler's camp, and so they might just throw him out of power. Imagine if World War II in Europe had been fought over the Sudetenland between Germany and Czechoslovakia with U.S. arms and weapons. Not one American would have died. There would have been no Holocaust. Okay. I hope you feel my energy here because this is exactly what should have happened. We go back to history and we, we learn history. And I love history. Uh, as an amateur historian, I love history because it teaches you lessons. If we had used Czechoslovakia as our agent against Germany then instead of the Soviet Union later, Hitler might have been knocked out of power right then and there. Otherwise, he'd be in long... Even at best, the best case scenario for Hitler, he'd be caught in this long, drawn-out, knock-down, drag-out attrition, war of attrition with the Czechoslovaks, right? Where they're being armed and supplied by allies in the West and using their terrain to their advantage. Even if he'd managed to win somehow... He would have expended so many of Germany's resources and caused so much death that it's, it's doubtful he would have been able to launch another campaign. But his success without fighting, again, the more successes these dictators have, the, the, you, you, know, you give them an inch and they take 2.54 centimeters. Bad joke. <laughs> they, you, give them, you give them a cookie, they want some milk. They are going to take more. Okay? You know, choose your aphorism. They're going to want more. And World War II could have ended right then and there. All right? At the Battle of the Bulge alone, one battle, all right, in December 1944, U.S. forces are arrayed along with British forces in Belgium and northern France. The Germans advanced through the, the Ardennes as they had before when, when Rundstadt and uh, Rommel advanced against France in 1940, right? They, they advance back through there again, this time led by their new uh, uh, royal tigers or, or king tigers, as, as some people say. Um, the, um, these new 
heavy tanks. They didn't have enough fuel for them, but they, they were much better than anything the Allies on the Western Front had, because unlike the Soviet Union, we hadn't felt the brunt of Germany's tank forces. Uh, we had the Soviets to do that for us. You know, they absorbed, you know. That one battle at the Battle of the Bulge cost America 100,000 lives. Okay, that's a quarter of American losses in the entire Second World War. We lost about 400,000 dead. One in four were killed in the Battle of the Bulge. That was the one major Eastern Front-like battle. All right, there is a battle that took place near Moscow in 1942 called the Rezhev Meat Grinder. The Rezhev Meat Grinder between the Germans and the Russians cost 1.2 million lives in this all-out battle between infantry, artillery, tanks, aircraft, what we call combined armed armies, both of them going at each other, full bore. Russians making massive charges, Germans making massive charges, back and forth. 1.2 million men died. Four times the total casualties of Americans in the entire Second World War in one battle. Okay, so hiring the Soviet Union to defeat the Germans, the long term, there were some costs to that. There were some problems with the way we did it. I'm not going to get into the morality of all of that right now. Just making the point that that saved so many American lives. If the Germans were not fighting the Soviet Union, we would have had to face all of those forces in France. Could you imagine if we look back to World War II with a million dead? I mean, I might not even be here. My, my grandfather fought in the Pacific. You know, I mean, uh, maybe he would have been in Europe instead and, and might not have uh, survived. I mean, who knows? Okay, the, the point is, imagine World War II as a conflict lasting no more than a year between Germany and the Czechos Czechoslovakia. And after, as we're arming Czechoslovakia and the Japanese are watching as we're arming China, right? They're seeing our resolve to defend Europe from the Nazis. What are the Japanese going to do? Well, they would have made peace, as they tried to do anyway, because they would realize that they can't win, that we're going to stop at nothing, that we're serious, and that they're not going to conquer China. The point is, World War II could have ended right then and there. Imagine the misery and the suffering and the massive death and, and human loss that took place in the Second World War, and it could have ended right then and there if someone had made the right choice. Okay? That's what we're doing right now in Ukraine. Right now in Ukraine is the same, supporting Ukraine is the same as supporting Czechoslovakia in 1938. Okay? We are preventing a mad dictator from conquering a sovereign state that if he is allowed to conquer it, he will move on from there. Now, okay, so the, the, Ukrainian launched, they, the Ukrainians launched this incredible counteroffensive. They've routed the Russians. The Russians are coming up with all kinds of excuses why they're losing. Russia is, is just in this desperate situation. They're buying arms from North Korea now, of all places. They're trying to get the Chinese to supply them. China kind of needs their weapons for something else. They're kind of looking at Taiwan and, and salivating. Not clear that China really wants to get involved in this precisely. Okay, so um, Putin is trying to call for a mobilization. There's been talk, will he call for full mobilization, which would put Russia on a wartime footing that's been done before in Russian history. But it has also led to a number of revolutions and uh, the ouster of SARS and, <clears throat> and such. Well, uh, he's not doing this 
precisely. He's not going full bore, but uh, they have the the Russians have passed new laws driving the economy in a more um, military production focused way. You know, so now the economy will be focused more on military production. That is prohibiting the the, the production of civilian materials and and goods. And the, he's calling up another three hundred thousand troops that he's going to have to put into training and uh, try to get out on the front lines by winter. It's pretty clear the Russians are not going to have enough coats uh, or the ability to keep these men warm, but they are calling them up anyway. Will these people be willing to fight? Not only are uh, the Russian army is struggling even now with a bunch of people who are conscripts who are kind of like, why are we here? You know, we, we were told we'd be, you know, we'd be met with uh, kisses and roses and everyone would love us uh, and uh, no, they're killing us. <laughs> right. And they've got we wonderful we Western weapons, artillery, high Mars, all this kind of stuff. Will they be willing to fight? Could they revolt against their leaders? Could we see another 1917? Right? It could happen. I don't necessarily see it happening. Putin is still very popular in Russia, but anything can happen. Uh, it is also likely that if Putin falls, Russia may collapse. You know, it'd be nice to think that maybe the center could hold and, and Russia could uh, replace Putin and head in a more democratic direction. That's, that's wonderful, uh, positive thought, but it's also naive and deluded. That's not, that's not the Russia that exists today. So we'll see what happens. But uh, Putin is definitely trying to get the forces together to uh, attack Ukraine. War goals. Well, the Russians invaded Ukraine. They wanted the government to resign and he wanted a puppet government installed. So basically, Putin's uh, initial goal was to take over all of Ukraine. After which, having achieved such a great success, he basically uh, accomplished the same thing in Georgia in 2008. He would then, you know, be able to be in a position to start destabilizing Poland, Romania, Hungary, start moving his way into Eastern Europe and getting those countries out of NATO um, and, and getting Russia friendly governments there. Right. Well, now that whole situation has changed. <clears throat> Now Ukraine has resisted. The Russians have been forced to pull back from Kyiv. Now, theoretically, their war aims are to capture Ukraine, the Black Sea coast, uh, excuse me, capture Crimea, the Black Sea coast between Crimea and Russia uh, in, the, uh, in the northeast of the country, uh, the Donbass Oblast, the, the basically eastern Ukraine, and uh, they they captured some territory in the Kharkiv region. So, you know, they were thinking of kind of carving up Ukraine, taking the eastern half, and then just continue to destabilize Ukraine from there, possibly, right? Well, that's not working. <laughs> now Ukraine has launched this counteroffensive. Russia's in a really desperate situation, um, and war aims are, are changing. Uh, I would like to note that while Russia is buying weapons from North Korea and begging the Chinese to sell them stuff, uh, and of course, they're under sanctions. So it's difficult for them to get hard currency and uh, be able to trade with China, be able to actually to be able to pay for things. Can't just print rubles and hand them to the Chinese. The Chinese are not that stupid. No one is, right? Like, oh, uh, you, you printed some Monopoly money. Yeah, sure, I'll give you tanks for that. No, no, you, you, we need some gold. <laughs> We're going to need some U.S. dollars, something that, you know, has some real value, okay? Um, so, so there's that. Meanwhile... Ukraine has the 
full logistical and financial backing of the West. They're getting millions and billions of dollars from the United States. More aid has been promised. We're sending weapons there. Uh, Western countries are starting to look at the supply situation. We've depleted a lot of our stockpiles of artillery ammunition, missiles, and anti-tank missiles and such to give to Ukraine. So now we're in a situation where we need to rebuild our own stockpiles, but we also need to be able to provide supplies to Ukraine. So now we're ramping up production of these war materials uh, so that we can rebuild our own supplies and send, uh, you know, keep Ukraine supplied. So Ukraine has this logistical backing. The Russians aren't defeated yet. But when you look at the long term, Russia does not have the system, the, the support, the economic power, the strength to, perpetu to perpetuate this war ad nauseum, right? They're going to have to fight and they're going to have to either, they have to achieve victory, they have to win or lose. They have to do something. Something has to happen soon. They can't sustain this. Another year of this and there won't be a Russia. Russia will be bankrupt and falling apart. You know, I've talked in the past about what would that look like? You know, the rail lines kind of no longer connect the country, this region looking out for itself, that region looking out for itself, and pretty soon there's no more Russia, right? The center can't hold. Um, anyway, so Ukraine has this logistical support, so Ukraine can stay in the fight. What are their war aims? Uh, Ukraine says, you know, Zelensky says, he wants to reconquer, you know, to liberate, and say reconquer, he wants to liberate all the territory Russia has conquered. All of Ukraine's sovereign territory, the Crimea, the Donbass, Donetsk, Luhansk, the whole nine yards, everything back to where the borders were before Russia invaded in 2014 in the first place. Right uh, now, it's that that's a very interesting set of goals, is it not? I mean, that that would definitely reverse the situation there. He seems to have some backing there. A uh, new prime minister in Britain, Liz Truss, I aforementioned uh, on this podcast, has called on the complete withdrawal of Russian forces. That's her position, is that Russia should withdraw completely from Ukraine. And on top of that, Russia should pay reparations for the cost of the war uh, to Ukraine. And especially as we're finding mass graves, that's not unreasonable. So the head of the, of the United Kingdom is calling for that. And that says something. And with the U.S. backing Ukraine and uh, supporting uh, Ukrainian war goals, that's not inconceivable. It's entirely possible they could, uh, we could all press until they achieve that. Uh, there are some great interviews of General Hodges. I want to mention um, he has a couple of good interviews out there. A recent one from uh, Deutsche Welle, uh, the German, uh, the main German news station, kind of the German BBC. Uh, it's sounds terrible and I'm sorry. I apologize, Germany, <laughs> you know, <laughs> and truly good. Uh, excuse me, you know, please, please forgive me. I didn't mean to, to say that, but I did. Anyway, uh, Deutsche Welle uh, has an interview with Hodges talking about, uh, that's updated with the, the recent uh, offensive. And uh, he too is, is saying that Ukraine should recover all of their sovereign territory. General Hodges used to, to be the head of NATO. Uh, he's been a major political figure in this situation. Uh, he's talked about the US relationship with Germany, Germany's relationship to Ukraine, things of that nature. So he knows what he's talking about. And when he says that, there's a strong feeling then that NATO and, and Europe will back Ukraine uh, in that goal, right? So it looks like uh, Ukraine is 
uh, headed in the right direction to achieve that war aim. So, <clears throat> situation turning around there. Um, obviously, the collapse of Russia would not be good for U.S. interests. Uh, we would need to have some kind of a plan to deal with Russia's nuclear weapons, something serious, right? Um, and while the dismantling of the Russia's nuclear stockpiles and would be a wonderful thing, it's not going to come for free. It's going to come at great cost to us in blood and treasure, right? Uh, this would mean, you know, U.S. forces on the ground seizing, you know, literally seizing Russian nuclear assets, taking over submarines, taking over missile silos, and uh, as quickly as we can, removing warheads and dismantling missiles and such um, so that they cannot be used, you know, seizing stockpiles, uh, you know, weapons-grade uh, uranium and plutonium that's sitting around, things of that nature, uh, because, you know, we would, we would need to prevent these from falling into the hands of dangerous people. They're already in the hands of a dangerous person, Vladimir Putin. Um, no word on, on whether he might use nuclear weapons in this conflict, uh, presumably not. General Hodges has uh, described a scenario where if Russia were to use any weapon, the United States would be able to respond even with conventional weapons, without using nuclear weapons ourselves. We could respond in such a way that would punish Russia for the employment of, of nuclear weapons. And I want to say right now, I'm Nuclear weapons are in themselves an entire category. There are people, well, there's tactical nukes and strategic nukes, tactical being the smaller size, kind of like those used at Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Nuclear weapons are horrible weapons. They have long-term after-effects. They're extremely destructive. They are terrible weapons of mass destruction, and they should not be used. And we cannot allow ourselves to think, oh, oh well, a tactical nuke, maybe, you know, that's kind of, you know, it's a small nuke. No. Any use of nuclear weapons in any way needs to be uh, absolutely forbidden. Uh, the, the Eisenhower policy of mutually assured destruction should, be our, should always be our response to nuclear threats. If Russia attacks with nuclear weapons, we threaten to respond with nuclear weapons. Now, if Russia is attacking Ukraine with them and not the United States, our response would have to be thus, you know, limited. But uh, as, as General Hodges points out, we could do a lot of damage to Russia's conventional forces in that region uh, in support of Ukraine if such a, a thing happens. And so that creates this, this scenario where it's a very bad idea for Russia to employ them. And that's how we deter these things, making sure that they know if they cross the line, we will respond. We will respond effectively and proportionately, and they will, you know, they will suffer. Russia can't win a war against the U.S. You know, if we were, if we were in a conventional, purely conventional war, within 24 hours, there'd be no more Russian Air Force, there'd be no more Russian Navy, and the Russian Army would have no supplies, uh, even if we didn't, you know, carpet bomb their troops with B-52s and, and uh, A-10s, right? They'd have no supplies, no equipment, and they'd be walking on foot, as fast as they can, running as fast as they can back to Russia uh, with Ukrainian forces on their heels. So that is how you provide an effective deterrent to nuclear weapons and uh, that sort of thing. As always, I hope for peace. You know, I, I really hope sanity prevails here. If Putin would just back down, you know, at least pull his forces back to Luhansk, Donetsk and Crimea uh, and try to negotiate. 
Obviously, his goal now is to try to blunt the Ukrainian advance and uh, halt their their offensives and uh, <clears throat> take time to, to get his 300,000 more troops in, engaged and try to uh, advance. Obviously, Ukraine doesn't have any other reserves they can tap into. There are no more people to fight on Ukraine's side. They have logistical support from the U.S. and uh, allies, but they can't raise more men. You, you know, here Putin can raise more men, but he doesn't have a lot of logistical support for them. Uh, and, you know, people given one month's training in military service and then put in a uniform and sent to Ukraine are not going to be very effective soldiers. Right. That, that's more like cannon fodder. Well, uh, you know, I needed to get this episode out, and I'm, I'm glad I was able to get all this content here. I know it's long. Appreciate your patience, uh, but there's a, there's a lot of stuff to cover. So with that, I will say, as always, goodbye, Lahitrot.